the mice are evolving um, you know, adaptations to suit the specific requirements of the park that they live in. So in Central Park, indeed, they have, they have evolved a gene that seems to help them to deal with a very fatty diet, namely a human diet because of all the junk food that they feed on. Of course, they have had the junk food to them is just as unhealthy as it is to us, but they have had 400 mouse generations of time to evolve adaptations. You're listening to the Dude Nature Podcast. What's up, everyone? This is my interview with evolutionary biologist Menno Schildhausen. Yeah, I, I, I looked at the pronunciation. I listened to it. I tried my best. Sorry, Menno, I tried. On his book of Darwin Comes to Town. Okay, this book's really awesome. It's about how we can see evolution taking place almost in real time in cities. As you might have remembered from school, people talk about evolution like it happened thousands of years ago and we can't see it in real in now nowadays but actually with creatures and cities we can see evolution happening to them um and the book is also about how there's also a ton of life that we take for granted in our urban environments so sometimes when we live in a city we look out and we say hey this city is a natural desert but as Menno, Menno shows in his book that's really not true at all there's a ton of interesting creatures here after you read the book, the crows and the bugs and the birds that you see every day, you're going to start looking at them a lot closer and be a lot more interested in them. And also find, as I have in Portland, that there's a ton of what's so-called urban naturalists that are doing the same thing. Um, so it's really cool to learn about all the biodiversity that's happening in cities. And it's pretty eye-opening. But without further ado, here is my interview with Menno. So man, I was I was actually just I was I was watching your TED talk. Um yeah. and one thing that one thing that you mentioned is that we think of evolution as something that's happened in the past that mm-hmm. that we're that we're never going to see. And this is something that your book really taught me actually is that we're we're seeing evolution happen all the time now. Yeah. Um so can you talk about like an example of human-induced evolution that we're seeing happen now? Well, depends where you live, but uh, if you really want to see it happening in your own backyard, uh, at least in Europe and in um, and in North America, you can, for example, watch um, the garden snails. Those are those are um, you, you you may know them. They're actually from Europe, but they're introduced in North America. They're very pretty, colorful shells, uh, about one and a half two centimeters in size. And they come in all kinds of colors from yellow till till dark brown via pink. And they have sometimes have black bands. And we know that every color morph of that snail influences the internal temperature of the snail inside. And because of the urban heat island, uh, with the fact that in cities it's usually a couple of degrees centigrade hotter than outside of the city at the same time, these urban snails of that species are evolving a lighter color. So the brown ones are, are disappearing and the, the yellow ones are increasing. Um, so the whole species is becoming more yellow um, because you know those 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 brown ones have a higher because they it's like sitting in a in a black car um, on a hot day you heat up more when you're in a dark shell um, so so they 
are more often dying from overheating during heat waves in the summer, whereas the yellow ones are surviving. So the result is natural selection, which makes this species evolve. I mean, for a snail at breakneck speed, that's that's quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the snails are evolving from having a brown shell to having a yellow shell, yellow shell, and that's to disperse heat. And that's yeah. because in city centers, it's hotter. Yeah, and the yellow ones are less likely to get overheated, so so they survive just a little bit better, and they pass on their genes to the next generation. And what's the time span of, of this? Like, how have you seen it uh, over the years? Is this like a hundred years, a thousand years? Like, what's the time span for this? You can well, it, it, you can measure it at any at any time scale. I mean, I've seen it happen just a few over a few years. Um, but of course, if you wait longer, um, the process has more time to play out. So, uh, but in a couple of, of decades, you can already already see major major differences. Um, we have in the Netherlands, we have these reclaimed lands, uh, and and we know when those were uh, drained. So we can actually measure how long it's taken for uh, for snails to change since they since they colonized those places. So that's a very easy way to measure this evolutionary speed. And yeah, we're seeing it happening in just a couple of years, couple of decades. Yeah, I think I but I think that um, it was the biggest thing your your book your book really taught me. And I I studied. Uh, environmental science in school so I, t I took biology classes and i know i wrote you that email because i read your chapter on the peppered moth which for yeah. the listeners is the uh the peppered moth evolution from basically the, the start of the industrial revolution to stopping some of the industrial stuff um and my freshmen always told me that evolution was something that could only happen over thousands of years and they're like you're not going to see it you can't see it in real time and so a big thing that your book taught me was that no you can see it because we've changed the environment so much, we can see these creatures evolve like basically right before our eyes. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, and of course, it's it's still, still sort of subtle evolution. We're not really seeing completely new species evolving on such a short time scale. You need more time for that. Although that can sometimes also happen in a few centuries or a few thousand years. Um, but what we do see is really you know changes in the color or in the behavior of of species in the way they produce their seeds or in, in, in the, the, the types of prey that they are adapted to feeding on. So you can see changes in, in one or a small number of characteristics over really a short period of time. And it's really true that this old idea that you need to, you know, that it takes it takes millions of years and you need to be a paleontologist to study evolution or you need to go to right. a very different place like the Galapagos, that's all not right. true. Just a very mundane, ordinary biological process that's happening everywhere all the time. Right. And you can observe all this stuff. You know, most of us live in cities. You can observe all this stuff from your window. Well, like one thing, there's these crows that fly um, at sunset every day past my window. And yeah. I've always thought they were cool. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, like I really want to document these. Like what's happening with these? But basically like you open up the possibility that someone can be a naturalist from their apartment window. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the great thing about about studying this this urban evolution, as we call it, that, you know, anybody who lives in a city, and that's most of us, you can can do this. It's uh, We all see these animals living around us, and, and we, we, we think, you know, those are not interesting because the real interesting right. stuff out there in nature reserves and on mountaintops and, and in right. But, you know, these actually what what is really interesting is that we are creating a new a new habitat uh, for all these animals and plants. And they're very rapidly adapting to us and to the changes we made, changes we made, make in the environment. 
and that's that's really fascinating to study and anybody can do it if you're if you're aware of it yeah well one thing you talk about in the book is is the biodiversity of creatures in cities versus biodiversity of creatures outside of cities mm-hmm. and you flip the script where there is actually a lot of biodiversity in the city. There's a lot of creatures in there and these totally new habitats of non-native species and native species coming in. Right. Um, is it is it fair to say that sometimes a city's genocide, if you will, of a of a of a of a non-native species is not fair? That we should be letting some of these some of these go. Well, I, I think so. Um, I think cities are really not the right place to be conserving native biodiversity. I, I think it's okay to do that in, you know, in islands or in really sensitive natural environments where we really want to preserve the community of species that has lived there for a long time. But cities are such a melting pot. I mean, that's the whole character of the urban ecosystem is that we are influencing it. And one way in which we influence it, influence it is by bringing all, in all these species from all over the world with our aquarium trade and our gardening trade and our pet trade and, and agricultural uh, activities. Those are all concentrated in cities. So obviously, when things escape or are released, it happens in and around cities. So cities are really... as constantly change they're constantly in flux there's constantly changing composition of the ecosystem um and to try to you know to to meddle in that and to to remove anything that's non-native and to to boost anything that is native i think it's it's an uphill battle and we'd rather just observe this this natural experiment taking place that's at least that's my take yeah i think that is in a lot of ways your book made me it made me sad and happy too it was, it was interesting. I, I was, I'm, I'm sad that, you know, we really, we are losing a lot of these ecosystems that we, that we naturally had, but happy in that we are creating new ones. It's not like these cities are, are barren deserts of life. There are, there, there, there is life here. So I was wondering, I'm wondering when I read it, do you have a, a positive outlook on the future? Are you more happy or more sad based on this? <laughs> well, um, I'm 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 happier than I would be, or I'm happy, I'm happier than I was uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I was yeah I was like that I was also thinking you know cities are not interesting biologically we have to travel further and for every year we have to travel further to find untouched nature um, mm-hmm. and that's where the real stuff is and it's it's still true of course that's you know these pristine environments or as pristine as you can get them are wonderful but. Um, and, and it's sad that they are diminishing, and I think we should try to stop that as much as we can. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's it really made me happier to live in an urbanized area, uh, which I do, um, because e- even I have realized more and more over the years that that what's going on in cities is is not something to to be sniffed at as a biologist. It's really a very interesting process. Um, and cities are actually quite, they're getting richer, you know, people are, are finding out ways to, richer in the sense of, of, of biodiversity, people are finding ways to boost biodiversity in cities. And at the same time, we have these interesting processes going on of species that are finding evolving ways to live with us and among us. So I think once you, you, you have an eye for that, um, yeah, it sort of takes, it takes the edge of, of the loss of biodiversity that also goes on. Yeah. I think that in our, in our in our minds somehow 
We, I mean, before reading your book, this is really how I thought is that we, we separate cities from nature. You're just like, there's the Nate, right? Like you said, there's the preserves and uh-huh. then there's the city and they're not the same thing. Um, but what you're trying to say, I think is that actually like these, these are e- ecosystems in the city itself. That definitely takes the edge off losing a lot, a lot of the nature that we can at least enjoy like the, the nature in the cities. Um, yeah. talk, talking about cities in in like in your last couple of chapters you talk about uh Tokyo and like greening the cities what is what's your what's the best example of how people are basically bringing nature back into the city or making it not a city in a preserve but like somewhere in the middle you yeah. know it's a nice middle ground yeah yeah i think um you know we we now have technology to to really invite um, biodiversity and, and and natural ecosystems into our cities without without losing the function of the city. You know, in in the past, when you when you had trees growing on your roof, it meant your house was about to collapse. Nowadays, we can we can we can encourage trees to grow on our roof and still make it make it function as a perfect roof. And and the same applies to walls and pavements and there's all kinds of materials and 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 uh, cutting edge technology that we we and tech and, and uh, architects have um, that will allow us to make buildings that also support biodiversity on the outside. And you know, when you think about what houses are made of brick, it's it's really we've we, we're recreating our own caves. You know, we 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 lived in caves in the past. Uh, these these hollow. Hollow, hollow rocks that we uh, where we lived in, and when we build a house, it's basically a hollow rock. On the outside, it's 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 rocky and it's perfect for all the animals and plants that are adapted to growing on these hard surfaces. So, if we can recreate the natural vegetation and and small organisms and animals that live in a rocky environment and invite them back into our cities. We can really become cavemen again and have, have a biodiversity in the place where we live without losing the function of a, of a modern city. So that's, that's really my vision of, of the future of urban nature is that we, we, we try to merge the environment that we came from with the environment that we're building. Yeah. So can you, if you can imagine the perfect city, uh-huh. Menno's perfect city in the future, can you visually explain it to me? what 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 that city looks like oh that's that's nice yeah it's i think it would be um it it would be like you know i, I worked a lot in um in in southeast asia in borneo in um places where you have all these limestone cliffs and valleys and everything is everything is green but also there are lots of caves uh, and i think it would be look a bit like that it would it would be a sort of an organic uh, organically shaped um, city where people can live in, you know, in, in in stony constructions, but at the same time, every possible space, every possible surface where plants can grow and where where organisms can live uh, is being colon has been colonized by plants. So it's really everything is green. You don't see any bare any bare surfaces anymore. So we're really living inside uh, a completely natural ecosystem. And the only space that is that is vacant is the space that we need to to live and to move around. Which, uh, which at this at the moment, I mean, I'm looking outside now in in the, in the street. I see a lot of spaces that are not that don't need right. to, to be bare. They can be they can be covered in vegetation. Right, 
hundred percent. I think I think of sometimes when I was reading your book. Obviously, it's not the same metropolis as a modern city. But have you um have you watched Lord of the Rings, seen the movies, or, or read the books? Uh, bits of it. Yeah. Okay. I think I think about the Shire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. <laughs> where, the, where the hobbits grew up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. If we can take the Shire and merge it with a modern city, I think that would be in a really cool place. I think that sort of describes what I had in mind. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Um, you talk about one thing you describe is how cities can be islands of evolution. Some parts of a city, much like how evolution in an island can become isolated yeah. in different. In different, the example I think you use is that in different parks in New York, mm-hmm. m- like mice have grown <laughs> different genes yeah. to actually cope with the toxicity of that of that certain park. Can you talk about how how this happens and mm-hmm. why that's important? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the the, the, the hallmarks of of urban ecology is, is fragmentation. So you know what I. When you look at a map of the green spaces of a city, you see an archipelago of small islands and big islands of of green. So vegetation, which in a natural environment is more or less continuous, in cities, at least at the moment, is very much uh, fragmented into small bits of of vegetation. And we know that, you know, we automatically associate an archipelago with evolution. You think of Hawaii and the Galapagos, and you know that every every isolated bit of, of habitat can... Um, support its own species and because these things are isolated evolution can go in different directions in different islands and that's how you get this you know 13 species of darwin's finches or god knows how many species of silver swords or or honey creepers in uh, in hawaii and in theory the same thing could happen in these fragments in in cities so in every park or even in every building um, an isolated organism could evolve its own in its own direction uh, and this, we, we see that this is actually happening. There's a couple of very good examples of, you know, lizards in Australia. And uh, yeah, the, the example you mentioned is, I think, one of the best ones in, of uh, white-footed mice in, uh, in New York City, which, um, which is a native species of mouse. Um, and it, uh, it, it, it had lived in the East Coast of North America for a long time. And it also lived in New York before the city was built. But when the city was built, they became marooned in these in the larger city parks they still live in those large city parks they don't cross they're not like your house mice they don't cross between parks they cannot cross roads or buildings so for hundreds of years those mouse populations have been isolated and a colleague of mine uh, jason munchy south from fordham university he's studying the evolution of those mouse populations and he's, he's actually finding that the mice are evolving um you know adaptations to suit the specific requirements of the park that they live in so in central park indeed they have they have evolved a gene that seems to help them to deal with a very fatty diet namely a, a human diet because of all the junk yeah. food that they feed on and of course they have had the junk food to them is just as unhealthy as it is to us but they have had 400 mouse generations of time to evolve adaptations to it yeah it's it's crazy when you go into it in the book how They've evolved genes to deal with the different things in in the different parks. Mm-hmm. It's so wild because it's so quick, and it just go. It just it's against what I mean. It's it it's against what I was taught when I, when I was in school. I know that it was a little bit ago, but it it was so interesting to learn that this stuff takes place in real time. We can see this stuff happening. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's not yeah. a thing of the past. And of course, um, 
Well, one thing I want to say is that the generation time, of course, plays an important role. Like I said, 400 years seems very short, but it's 400 mouse right. generations. And this generation time, so the time needed between you know being born and having your own children, uh, that's sort of the evolutionary clock speed. Uh, because then the next generation, you see the result of the natural selection in the generation before. So in humans, evolution proceeds much more slowly because we have this long generation. So 400 mouse generations would be would be a few thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years in human time, uh, and then suddenly it seemed like the sort of time scale that we we associate with evolution. Yeah, one thing, one thing, one thing you mentioned in the book too, um, and I'll try to explain this really quick to to the listener is that with the peppered moth study, a scientist was trying to ask, he was trying to basically t- tell the scientific community that we should look further into this, not to disprove the theory. But then a creationist took that and basically and ran with it right. and made it this thing that it wasn't. And that, that essentially made him so motivated him to do this study for like 400 nights yeah. because he like he couldn't stand the thought of his work having pushed evolution back. I can only imagine how horrible that would be. <laughs> and another and an, another time you mentioned in the book that creationism, it keeps the bar keeps switching because as we get more and more evidence for evolution that bar of creationism it keeps changing around so i was wondering if you could talk about that a bit yeah one of the um, one of the things of course that creationists often say is you know this this micro evolution and of course that's the only sort of evolution that you can see on on a on a short time scale small changes that's not real evolution. Obviously, that's that's what's going on. But with real evolution, namely the origin of new species, that has never been observed, and that even that is not true. But of course, it's it's once you start moving the goalpost about what qualifies as evolution, it's it's much easier to to win the argument. Um, and in fact, that um, yeah, that that I, I think it's it's very important for for biologists to keep explaining that evolution is just an accumulating accumulation of all these small steps and if you if you uh, if you accept that one step is true is true then the accumulation of all these small steps is also true so if you just have enough time for these small steps of microevolution to accumulate into macroevolution into really the origin of new species um, then, then obviously, then you also need to accept that as a, as evolution. And yeah, in the in the story of the peppered moth, this is something that um, that that happens uh, in the sense that, like you said, the the peppered moth story, which was a you know a classic case of of evolution, and actually the first case of you could say urban evolution that we that we know mm-hmm. of the 19th century, where these these moths evolved um, darker wings. Because of the the fact that the the trees become became black from the suit of the industrial revolution, and then um, the black moths had a better camouflage actually than the original pale moths, and and the species evolved into a black a black moth. Uh, so the color of the wings evolved, um, and yeah, there was um, Mike Majerus, uh, a British geneticist, evolutionary geneticist. He uh, he published a, a, a book in. Um, in the late 1990s, in which he explained that the, the peppered moth story was a, was a cool story. It was a very good story, but there were still many gaps in, in it. We still didn't know, where, for example, whether birds were actually eating the moths in right. nature, um, whether uh, the camouflage really worked. We, we were just assuming that it, that they did. Um, so he pointed out all the weaknesses in the in the story, just to make to to sort of stimulate other researchers to take up the gauntlet and to start filling those gaps. 
but instead what happened is that um it was this the book was publicized by 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 a reviewer and creationist picked up that review because i think it was in the, the new york review of books or something it was a relatively high prominent review and um and then uh, an author judith uh, hooper who probably was aiming for this creationist market really played out right. the whole peppered mod story and tried to 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 cast uh, cast it in an in an in an ill light and suggesting that fraud had been had been committed by the the people in nineteen fifties who did research on this and that really stimulated Mike Majerus to to sit and uh, to start an experiment himself and this was actually in the last years of his life he he died very early of cancer but in the five years before he before he passed away he he spent four hundred nights um, in his own garden doing experiments with, with these peppered moths to really prove um the theory uh, and he actually did uh, so he, he reared thousands of moths and released them in his garden and he avoided all the pitfall traps that the previous researchers had stepped into and he managed to prove that yeah exactly what people had assumed was happening was actually happening the, the birds were eating the 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 least camouflaged ones more easily than the ones that were better camouflaged so um yeah the the story was really bolstered by 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 his work and it's i mean it's so easily so easy to discredit the theory but it's so so much hard and dedicated work to to prove it's yeah one a hundred percent it's so easy to disprove it but to prove it it takes 400 nights over four <laughs> years yeah. of work but i i think he's a real hero honestly of science yeah. yes yes I think yeah for sure um it drove him crazy Basically, that he is that his work had been taken the wrong way and was gonna it was gonna stop science. He was like, I can't, I mean, he's like, I'm I'm not gonna let this happen. Yeah, yeah. and he and he didn't. It was awesome. And he actually didn't manage to publish his work before he died. It was his colleague right. find his notes, and his his widow had to look up for his notes and and pass them to his colleagues, and they actually published his results. Yeah. After his death, what did you what what did you learn the most from writing the book? Um. Well, I learned what I learned is that um, this the city is really it's it's a playground for biologists that has hardly been used. Um, there's so many cool projects to yeah. do um, for biologists, but especially also for students and for school children and for citizen scientists because everybody lives in cities. Um, and there's, you know, I have a list in, in my computer of a of, uh, hundred research questions that could be could be studied, and they're all fun and easy to do, and the organisms are easy to find. Uh, experiments are are simple to study how these animals and plants in our cities are are dealing with all these new ecological features that we're throwing at them. Yeah, I I totally I think that you start the book off with it's you looking at a mosquito in in the <laughs> yeah. subway. Yeah. And I think that by the end of the book, as the reader, you kind of you give some of that passion on to the reader where they they want like, you know, like I want to start looking at the crows. And then I realized that when I researched it, there's this whole community of people that are documenting the crows in Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. like, I, that I never knew about. Yeah, so right. I definitely I, I think it's definitely inspiring to be a to be a city naturalist, if you will. Um, yeah. th- thanks so much for coming on. I got three last questions for you. Uh Book recommendation can be anything, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Ooh, um, I would say, um, God, caught me by surprise here. Um, 
The Natural History of Selborne. It's a it's a it's an 18th century book, but it's the really one of the first um, one of the first modern day naturalist writings uh, from from England. It's really nice, to have, you know, and a very early naturalist describing the countryside in in 18th century England, um, and it's really an eye opener to me. Awesome, um, spirit. What's your spirit animal? Um, that, that I, I, I think, um, the, um, Baderus beetle, that's a, that's a wonderful, very elegant rove beetle, brightly colored, uh, and it runs around little pebbles by the, by, by stream sites. And I'm always happy when I see it. <laughs> that's awesome. Favorite animated movie villain. Ooh. Um, the, um. Let's see the, the 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 forgot his name, but I would say the um, the bad guy from Monsters Monsters Inc. This lizard that um, the lizard it? the lizard yeah that's the one that changes the chameleon exactly. yeah yeah I know exactly what you're talking about that's a great bad guy I gotta see that movie that's been a while since I've seen that he's a yeah. great bad guy though cool yeah. bad guy for sure um every Menno thanks so much for coming on everyone the book is Darwin comes to town. How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Menno, where can people find you? Find you? They can find me on um, um, my last name, Schildhuizen.com. Yeah. Menno, thanks so much for coming on. Guys, I really strongly recommend that you read this book, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's, uh, it'll make you want to be a city naturalist. It's fantastic. Menno, okay. thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye, hey, so that was Menno Schildhauser. And again, the book is Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. You can find Menno at his Twitter, at Schildhausen. Hope I'm pronouncing, the, pronouncing that right, but I'm trying my best. You can find him at Taxon underscore Expeditions, or you can find him on his Instagram at Menno Schildhausen, just spelled out. You can find us, the Dude Nature, at Dude underscore Nature on our Instagram. You can find us on our Facebook page, or you can listen to us wherever you get podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. We love you all.